You're listening to audio from the archive of Highland Baptist Church. For more information about Highland, go to hbcwaco.org. Amen. You may be seated. So we're starting a brand new series this morning called The Conquerors. It's a study of the book of Judges, the first six chapters. And when you walked in today, you should have received some teaching notes and inside of those, or received a bulletin. Inside the bulletin, you should see some teaching notes to kind of keep you um, up with what I'm talking about, not only this morning, but for the days ahead as well. The book of Judges is a great book, and here's my springboard statement, not only for this morning, but for this entire fall. All of us in this room, life will either conquer us this year, or we'll be conquerors in the power of God this year. Either life is going to conquer us or we'll be conquerors in life through the power of God. That is true of every single person in this room. Life's going to get you this year. You're going to implode. Life's going to conquer you, conquer your schedule, conquer your emotions, conquer all of the victories that you have had in the past, or you will be a conqueror in life this year through the power and the presence of God in Christ Jesus in your life. So I hope that you'll turn with me, please, to the book of Judges. If you're kind of unfamiliar with the Bible, it's the seventh book in the Old Testament. Once you get there, I'd encourage you to stay there. We'll be in there pretty much the remainder of the morning. So go with me, please, to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 1. Hopefully you're there. Hopefully you're almost there, or you have fired up your iPad or turned on your smartphone, and you have punched in J-U-D-G-E-S, and you're ready to go in chapter 1. So Judges chapter 1. In order for us to get to Judges chapter 1 together, we need to get a good running start into the book of Judges. So we're going to go all the way back in our minds to the book of Genesis. Uh, That's the very beginning, and someone said that's a very good place to start. So let's start there in the book of Genesis and get a running start into the book of Judges. The book of Genesis In Greek, that word is genesis, and the word genesis means the origin. And so in the book of Genesis, we have the origins of all things, the origin of creation, the origin of humanity, the origin of language, uh, the origin of culture, and certainly the origin of government. We also see the origin of the country or the people of, of Israel, the Hebrews. In fact, there in the book of Genesis, God comes to Abraham and gives him three promises. The first promise that he gives him is a promise of land. A promise of land, all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. This is your land. This belongs to the people of God. And if you want to get any handle on what is happening in the Middle East today, you can trace it all the way back to this, this chapter in Genesis chapter 11 when God gave his people that land. And it has been fought over ever since. Uh, not only that nation, but the city of Jerusalem, and not just Jerusalem, but the Temple Mount, those few square acres, uh, acres up there on top of the Temple Mount, is the most fought over territory on the planet. Why? Because God gave Abraham that promise that this land belongs to God's people. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that every square inch in the universe is claimed by God and then counterclaimed by Satan. And certainly there's probably not another place more true than that that truism than there in Jerusalem, there in the nation of Israel, and there on top of the Temple Mount. So God gave Abraham a promise, a promise of land, but also a promise of children. Now, Abraham only had two children, um, Isaac and Ishmael, but from Isaac and from Ishmael came great nations and a great multitude. And so God gave Abraham this promise, I'll give you this land, I will also give you children. And those two descendants, of course, created a multitude of people and a multitude of nations. The third promise that Abraham gave, uh, God gave to Abraham was the blessing, the promise of a blessing, that Israel would be a blessing to all people. In fact, whoever blessed Israel would be blessed. Whoever cursed Israel would be cursed. In fact, God told Abraham that out of that blessing will come one who will bless all 
the nations. We know that now, of course, as being Jesus Christ. And so that's what we see in the book of Genesis, a promise. God gave Abraham a promise of land, a promise of children, a promise of blessing. But at the very end of Genesis, we find the Hebrew children, the Israelites, in captivity, enslaved in Egypt. So the next book in the Bible is the book Exodus, in Greek, Exodos, which means the great exit and the giving of the law. And so in the book of Exodus, as you know, God raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses, and it goes to Pharaoh. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. You've read the book, or you've seen the prince of Egypt before. You know what happens. And so Moses comes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh eventually lets the children go. Two million Jews approximately leave. They're in the book of Exodus, and we see uh, the great exit and the giving of the law. That's why in Exodus chapter 20, we have the ten commandments. Now, why did God give the Ten Commandments? This is really, really important, so that his people could stay in the blessing that he had given them back in Genesis. Good rules are always for our blessings. In fact, good dads always give good rules that make good sense to their kids. Good dads always make good rules, and so God, as the Father in heaven, comes down and he gives to Moses Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments were given to him, given to God's people, so that they might stay inside the blessing. Every good dad gives good rules to keep their sons, to keep their daughters in the blessing of God. I'll give you for an example. I've got two kids. As they were being raised, and they're high school students now, but we used to teach our kids or tell our kids, you don't pick up snakes. Like, they're not, they're, not that they're bad, not that all of them will bite you, but when you see a snake, you just don't run to it and adopt it and bring it close to you. you. You look at the snake, you come and find mom and dad. We'll tell you if that snake needs to be brought into the house or needs to be beheaded. We'll be the ones that makes that determination, correct? Because we wanted to teach them because I felt like we were pretty good parents, helping with good rules to help keep our kids in the blessing of not being bit by a snake. I remember very clearly in my mind when my son was about three years old or so coming to the bathroom, and I was in the bathroom and I had shaving cream on my face and I was shaving. Well, that's a pretty remarkable sight for a three-year-old boy to come in and see his dad with like white stuff all over his face. Then he reaches down to this little shiny thing we call a razor and begins to scrape that razor across his face. Well, my son thought that's pretty cool. So he reaches for the razor and I reach out to slap his hand. Right? Because I'm a good dad. I'm trying to keep good laws there, good rules there, so that my son will not cut himself, or will not hurt himself. Another rule we had in our house, and we still have in our house, is that you don't speak to cats. You don't talk to them. You don't pet them. You don't adopt them. You don't put milk out. Because cats are demonically possessed. You don't want to ever mess with a cat at all. So that's just my, you know, my gospel truth for you this morning. All dogs go to heaven and all cats. Well, you can fill in the rest of that blank there. But certainly... We taught our kids, you know, not to play with cats. That's a good rule for, for us. And so God, being a good dad, a good father, made good rules for his kids so that they might stay in the blessings of God. Now, why is the very next, the very next book in the Bible? We've got Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Leviticus is the book of forgiveness. Why is that the very next book in the Bible? Because God knew that we would break the law. God knew that we would break some of those Ten Commandments, if not all ten of those Ten Commandments. And so he sets up now for us a way to be forgiven. So in the book of Leviticus, we find the ways that we can be forgiven. First of all, God sets up for us because he knew we'd break the law, a day of atonement. Now your notes accidentally say a system of atonement. That was my fault. I put the wrong word in this week for my notes. A day of atonement. By the way, our Jewish friends still celebrate that day today. It's called Yom Kippur. Yom De Kippur, atonement or a day of forgiveness. And so God set up for us in the book of Leviticus. He knew we'd break the law. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up a day of atonement for you. Then I'll set up a system of sacrifices, 
Uh, Many of you know, if not all of you know, that that system of sacrifice required the spilling of blood. Uh, The blood of a heifer, the blood of a dove, the blood of a ram, the blood of a goat, whatever it might be. But there'd be no forgiveness unless unless some blood was was spilt for the remission, for the forgiveness of that sin. The third thing that God sets up in the book of Leviticus is the position of a priest. Now, what is a priest? A priest speaks to God on behalf of the people and speaks to the people on behalf of God. God knew we'd break the law, so he sets up for us a day of atonement, Yom Kippur, a day that all the sins would be forgiven at one moment, at one time for all people. He also set up for us a system of sacrifice that required the spilling of blood. And then thirdly, he set up for us the position of a priest, one who would speak to God on behalf of the people, one who would speak to the people on behalf of God. Now just think about those three things for just a second. Who do you think of one day forgiveness being forgiven? Blood being spilt out for the forgiveness of people. The position of a priest. Who do you think of? Yeah, when the preacher asks a question, Jesus is normally the answer. It would be the case here as well. Yes, Jesus. I mean, I believe that on every page of the Old Testament, we see Jesus. And certainly here in the book of Leviticus, a day of atonement on that Friday on that afternoon outside of Jerusalem, on the north side of the, of the wall, Jesus bled out for us that system of sacrifice. He was for us and is for us today our great high priest that speaks to God on our behalf and to speaks to us on behalf of his Father in heaven as well. So we've got Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. And so now we come to the, to the next book, the book of Numbers. Now, if you're on the read the Bible through plan, this is usually the book you stop in, right? Because you get to Numbers, it's boring. It's all these tribes, it's all these numbers, and you kind of give up somewhere in the middle of, of the book of Numbers. Well, here's what happens in the book of Numbers. You know that the Israelites have now left Egypt. Uh, they are making their way to the promised land. Uh, they're in a city called Kadesh Barnea. It's on the southeast side of the Jordan River. They're about to cross in. Uh, Moses, who was the leader at that time, determines that 12 men are going to go in and spy on the land. 12, by the way, young ministers in training, is way too big of a committee. He sent a real big committee in, 12 of them in, 10 of them came back and said, we can't do this. There are giants in the land. Some of them lied about. Others lied and said the the earth like opened up and swallowed up the people. But two guys came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, no, we can do this. In fact, Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, let us go into this land and take this land that the Lord our God has given us. Who did the two million Jews listen to? The 10 fearful people, the 10 fearful spies. So what does God do? God says, okay, I'm going to send you back into the desert for 40 years. And everybody over the age of 20, they're going to die off, and I'll bring back in in 40 years now, everybody under the age of 20. Think about it. What's 40 years to God? So he sends them out to to wander in the desert for 40 years, and they go out. Those over the age of 20 eventually die off. 40 years later, they're about to come back into the promised land. There's three old men living. Moses, about 90 years old. Joshua, about 80 or 85 years old, and Caleb, about 75 or 80 years old. And here they are, the very end of the book of Numbers, and they're about to come back into the promised land. The next book that we have in the Bible is the book of Deuteronomy. Deutero means two. Nomos means law. God is about to give these 20-year-olds and younger the law again. That's why in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are given one more time. It wasn't because they forgot about it. All the old people died off, and the young people needed to hear God's commands. The young people needed to hear the law of the Lord so they might stay in the blessing of God. And so here we are in the book of, of Deuteronomy. And so here's Moses and, and the middle schoolers, and here's Caleb and the college freshmen, and here's, uh, here's Joshua and the juniors in high school, and they're about to go back into the promised land or actually enter into the promised land. And, and uh, Moses stands in front of them and says, you better listen to this law. 
your parents didn't listen to it, it better stick with the new generation. And they're about to go in. In fact, we see in that that God in the Old Testament is a giver of grace, already giving second chances. For some reason, somewhere down the line, we began to believe that God was mean in the Old Testament and nice in the New Testament. Or that he was full of justice in the Old Testament, but full of grace only in the New Testament. Just know that our God has always been the same and will always be the same. He's a God of holiness, justice, and grace and love. Here in the book of Deuteronomy, God is already offering grace and giving second chances to the brand new young generation, 20 years and younger, to come into the promised land. Well, the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses preaches three great sermons and dies. It's the reason I don't try to preach three great sermons in a row on Sunday morning. He preaches three great sermons, and and he dies. And so now Joshua is the brand new leader, which leads us to the next book in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, we now have Joshua and Caleb. They're old men. They got all the young folks with them. They go into the promised land, and over the course of of 13 years, 31 years, they have 13 battles. Or is it just the opposite? What what I put in my notes up there? 31 battles over 13 years. There it is. 31 battles over 13 years. One of those battles was the Battle of Jericho. Uh, One of those battles was the Battle of Ai, and you can go back into the book of Joshua this week if you want to and read through the rest of those battles, but it's a pretty incredible book of two old men, Joshua and Caleb, who have taken these young people into the promised land, and there they begin to uh, have conquest over the land. The promised land opens up for them, these 31 battles to conquer the land over 13 years. Now, the army of Israel at that time was not a traditional army. Most armies don't win battles by marching around a city and blowing trumpets. Uh, Most armies don't win battles by the sun standing still for 24 hours at a time. Uh, Most armies don't don't win battles by taking out the Ark and the Covenant and letting the glory of God melt the faces of their their enemies. That may have been Indiana Jones, but one of those two, you know, melt the the faces of of their enemies. And so that's, that's the story of Joshua, which at the very end, we see Joshua dying. And he says, listen, choose you this day who you're gonna serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Joshua dies, and we come now to the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is where we'll be the rest of this fall semester. It is all about the conquerors and the conquered. So Judges chapter 1, with your Bible, would you open up with me, please? That was about 3,600 years of history in seven and a half minutes. So I hope that that was a quick enough history course for you. Go to Judges chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 1 together this morning. Judges 1.1. 1, 1. And after the death of Joshua, so Joshua has died at the end of the book of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. So what's happening here? They're now in the promised land. Wisely enough, they come to God and say, God, what's next for us? What is your will for us? Uh, You lead us, we will follow. And so God says, here's what I want you to do. I want the the people of the tribe of Judah to go into the land. I want them to begin to fight. And you see there in verse 2, they gladly say, the Lord says to them, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. And so they have heard instruction from the Lord. Now jump down to verse 8 of that same chapter. Judges chapter 1, verse 8. And watch how the tribe of Judah does really well to begin with. Judges chapter 1, verse 8, so the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem. Only the second time in the Bible we hear of the name, the city's name, Jerusalem. They took it also, or they attacked Jerusalem also and took it, and they put the city to the sword and set Jerusalem on fire. 
And after that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. And they advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, which was formerly called Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai, Ammon, and Talmai. And from there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, which is formerly called Kiriath Sefer. So here's what's happening. The tribe of Judah is doing really well. God has told them, I'm going to give this land to you. And so they begin to advance. They're doing great. They've taken Jerusalem. They're pressing forward. They've gone into the Negev, the desert. They've gone into the western foothills. They have taken some of these major cities. They're moving forward. They're looking good. They're victorious. But then jump down to verse uh, 19 of that same chapter, Judges 1.19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. We've seen that. They took possession of the hill country. That's a good thing, but... But they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. And so the tribe of Judah is doing so well, then they come up against this iron chariot or iron chariots that the Canaanites had. And they begin to fold. They begin to implode. They begin to grow fearful. And in doing so, it creates a chain reaction. Now stay with me here. Bible is open. Your iPad is is on, your iPhone is on, you're looking at this, look real quick, quickly with me and see the chain reaction. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 21. So the Benjaminites, that's another tribe of Israel, they failed to dislodge the Jebusites who are living in Jerusalem. And to this day, as, as, as this is being written, the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. I jump down to verse 27. But Manasseh, which is another tribe, they did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibliam or Megiddo. Jump down to verse 29. We're in Judges 1, 29. Nor did Ephraim, that's another tribe of Israel, they did not drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Look at verse 30. Neither did Zebulun, another tribe, they did not drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron. Look at verse 31. Nor did Asher, another tribe of Israel, they did not drive out those living in Akko. Look at verse 33. Neither did Naphtali, another tribe of Israel, they did not drive out those living in Beth Shemesh. Look at verse 34. The Amorites confined the Danites, there's the tribe, to the hill country. Now what is happening? This powerful tribe of Judah begins to fold. They grow fearful, and in doing so, all these other tribes, all the other tribes begin to implode. They grow fearful as well. Now, put this in your notes. You can write this down and keep it. The tribes of Israel allowed fear to override their faith. God had already given them a promise. God already said, I will deliver you. I will bring you to this land. This land will be yours. You go and stand on the promises of God. But instead, they grew fearful. And fear just like courage is contagious. And so the tribes begin to grow fearful. They listened, listen. They listened to the counsel of their own fears. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't listen to the counsel of your own fears. They begin to grow fearful. They begin to worry. They were then terrified. They then backed off of the promises that God had given them. They allowed their fear to override their faith except for one old man. Nestled in this passage, would you look with me at Judges chapter 1 verse 20. Judges chapter 1 verse 20, all around everybody's folding, all around everybody is scared, but in verse 20, but as Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. In your notes, I wrote this, this one man following God's guidance becomes an example of to the nation. I might add one old 85-year-old man. All the college students, terrified. Young families, terrified. 
The young warriors that you think would be nice and brave and prepared for battle, scared to death. And 185, the oldest man in the nation, steps up and says, wait a minute, I'm going to follow God. And I will be an example to the, to the nation around me. This old man, his name is Caleb. And I think it behooves us this morning to determine and discover a few things about this man named Caleb that we might mimic that conqueror in our own lives as well. You're in Judges uh, chapter 1. Would you go back about six or seven pages to the left and go to Joshua chapter 14 with me, and let's discover a few things about Caleb this morning. He is our conqueror. He set, set a pattern for us that we can copy. He is a man who is a conqueror in life, not conquered by life. And I want us to discover some things about him this morning, then I'll let you go home. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb. So here's our guy, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and said to him, here's what Caleb said, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you, Joshua, and about me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. We talked about that earlier. He's one of the two spies that came back with the report where they could take that land. And I brought back to him a report according to my convictions, but my brothers, the other ten spies, who went up with me, made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. I breeze right through something there that maybe you have seen before, or maybe half of you in this room, or 99% of you know already, but I found something out a few years ago that's fascinating to me. Go back and look one more time at Joshua chapter 14. Look at verse 8 with me. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and then Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Now a lot of people are thinking, what is a Kenizzite, and why is everybody so quiet all of a sudden? Like, what's the big deal about Kenizzite? Listen, the Kenizzites weren't Israelites, they were Canaanites. That didn't do anything to you. Let me say it again. So the Kenizzites weren't from the lineage of Isaac, they were from the lineage of Esau. Still not doing anything for you, I, I can tell. Let me put it this way. Caleb is from a tribe that is a part of God's unchosen, not God's chosen. Caleb comes from the people, the Kenizzites, who hated the people of God. The ones who God said, you will wipe these people off the planet. And here's what you can put in your notes. Caleb is not a Jew. Fascinating. The first judge over Israel was Caleb. The only leader, old leader in Israel was Caleb. The only one that came back who's still alive from that good report at Kadesh Barnea is Caleb. And listen, the leader of the Israelites is not a Jew himself. What does that mean to us this morning, you ready? God will forgive and accept anybody that comes to him. I don't care how far you have run away from God, God is faster than you are. I don't care how far it seems like that you are from God, God's arm is longer than that. I don't care what you've done, what you've seen, what you've said. God's grace is able to capture all of us, and God will accept and forgive anybody that comes to him in faith. You may be here today thinking, I'm from a broken household. I'm from a mom and dad or grandparents, a lineage that had no faith in Christ whatsoever. I'm just here at church today. Can God really love somebody like me, someone who's addicted to things, someone who's so broken about 
about things in life. I have no idea what's happening in church. I don't know the songs. It took me 15 minutes to find the book of Judges. I have no idea who this God is about. Great news for all of you this morning. God will accept and forgive anybody here today. That is the grace of God. Caleb's not even a Jew. He was a Kenizzite. And I would say to you this morning that he was the very first Gentile grafted into the people of Israel. My son's name is Caleb. You know what Caleb means in Hebrew? Dog. (laughs) Tenacious, ferocious, dog. Now, I know there's a lot of Caleb's around here, but I saw Caleb in the back over there as well. Caleb over here as well. And my son Caleb's over there. I've already seen about three Caleb's this morning. Congratulations. Your name means dog. <laughs> Tenacious, ferocious dog. What do Jewish people call Gentiles? Dogs. So here's Caleb, the dog. From outside of the people of God, from God's unchosen, from the lineage of Esau, and God says, I want to use that man in my kingdom. And at some point, we don't have this story, Caleb turned to God and pled forgiveness and asked for grace and God forgave him and accepted him and brought him in. Caleb, fascinating, is not even a Jew. The second thing I want you to see this morning about Caleb is that he was committed wholeheartedly to God. Would you look at one more time with me? Look at Joshua 14, you're already there. Jump down to the very end of of verse 8, or I'll read verse 8 to you. But my brothers who went up with me, they made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I'm in Joshua 14, verse 8. I, however, Caleb says of himself, I followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Read on. Look at verse 9. So on that day, Moses swore to me. So now Moses is speaking to Caleb. The land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Same chapter, jump down to verse 14. Joshua 14, 14. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who is the Kenizzite ever since. Why? Because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Church, listen, that's the spirit of a conqueror. That you follow God wholeheartedly, not just when it's convenient for you. That you follow God not just when it's politically correct, You follow God, wow, listen to this, even when you don't agree with him, you follow God. Not with 90% of your heart, not with 99.9% of your heart, but you follow God with an undivided heart. God, all of me belongs to all of you, and that is the spirit of a conqueror that I want to share with you this morning. Caleb, three times, he said it of himself. It's the estimation of Moses about Caleb, and then it's the estimation of the Holy Spirit about Caleb in Joshua chapter 14, verse 14, that this man loved God with all of his heart. Some of your translations use the word holy. Some translations use the word fully. Some of the translations mean with all of his heart or say with all all of his heart or wholeheartedly, everything about Caleb belonged to God. Third thing this morning, Judges chapter 1, verse 20. Would you go back about six pages to the right? Judges chapter 1, verse 20. The third thing about Caleb this morning. Look at Judges 1, verse 20 with me, please. We were just there a few moments ago. Go back, Judges 1, 20. As Moses had promised Hebron, now, I stole, I think on the screen behind me, a little bit of verse 10. So look at verse 10 because we see in that same chapter in verse 10 that Hebron was formerly called Kiriath Arba. So Caleb goes in there, verse 20, into Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and it was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. Here's the third thing for you this morning. Caleb believed God or trusted God for what looked impossible. 
Now, it may not look impossible to you and I this morning, but I'll explain to you what's happening here. Caleb trusted God for the things that seemed impossible. The word kirioth is the Hebrew word for city. The word arba is the Hebrew word for four. And so Caleb, remember, he's 85 years old. He goes into a city called Hebron, also known as Kiriath Arba, or the four cities. So it's a metroplex. And look back in your Bible. And he drives from it the sons of Anak. Who are the Anakins? Nothing to do with the Skywalkers at all. Who, who, who are the Anakins? They are, listen, the descendants of the giants. Wow. An 85-year-old man goes into a metropolitan area and kicks the tails of the giants. And can you imagine that? Your granddad going into Dallas-Fort Worth and taking some 20-year-olds with him and conquering huge giants that live in the metroplex area? That's what's happening here. It seems so impossible, I'm certain, for the people around. But Caleb, he did not deal in impossibilities. He dealt with the things that were possible with God. And he trusted God for the things that seemed so impossible. So he goes in there, and really what he is saying is, I'm an old man, but I and my generation am going to serve God. I and my generation, I'm going to serve God. Where are those old men today? Where are those young 50-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 20-year-olds today compared to 85-year-old Caleb? Back in 1780, the youngest man ever elected to England's parliament was 21 years old. You may know about him. His name is William Wilberforce. As a 21-year-old man, he entered into parliament, didn't know the Lord, wasn't saved. Five years later, as William Wilberforce was really determining who God is and going through his scriptures, he had tons of questions, and he met an evangelist by the name of John Newton. He wrote a little ditty called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. He was a former ship captain of a slave trade boat and in, in, uh, uh, business. John Newton was saved by Jesus Christ and sat down and talked to William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce believed upon the name of Jesus. And I'm telling you, Highland, he wasn't just saved, he was radically saved. Immediately, this young man, who is now 26 years old, begins to stand before Parliament. And at that time, the lifeblood of the economy of England and her colonies was the slave trade. 50,000 Africans were taken from northern and central Africa and then sold or traded into slavery. 50,000 a year. It was the economy, the lifeblood of England, and again, of all of her colonies as well. So for, for him to stand up and to go against the monarch, for William Wilberforce to stand up at Parliament and go against all of his, the people around him, all the business leaders, all of those members of Parliament, and to say year after year after year after year, slavery breaks the heart and breaks the law of God. Slavery breaks the heart and breaks the law of God for 20 years until March 25th, 1807, after hearing 20 plus years of Wilberforce saying that slavery broke the heart of God, England outlawed slavery only in England. And so for the next 26 years, William Wilberforce stood before Parliament, constantly reelected by his constituents, and stood and said, slavery breaks the heart and breaks the law of God for 26 more years until three days before he died. 
1833, England outlawed slavery not only there in the United Kingdom, but in all of her colonies as well. There's a man right there that said, I in my generation, I'm going to serve the Lord. Whether or not it's politically correct, whether everybody's for me, everybody's against me, I am going to serve God. That's the conquering spirit of Caleb. I don't care about everybody else in my generation. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to trust him and follow him and love him with all of my heart. And look what happens, and we're done. One person, in your notes, one person following God's guidance now becomes an inspiration to the next generation. Look at Judges chapter 1. Look at verse 11, and we're finished. Judges 1, 11. So from there they advanced against the people living in Debir, which was formerly called Kiriath Sefer. Then Caleb, here's our conqueror for this morning, he said, I will give my daughter Oxa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. So Othnal, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, took the city. So Caleb gave his daughter Oxa to him in marriage. Now, if you're figuring out the family tree there, you kind of see what's happening. It's a little, little weird. It's uh, um, Caleb's youngest brother's son is now going to marry the daughter of Caleb. Caleb's daughter is Oxa. His nephew is Othniel. And so cousins are getting married. That's not right today. It was okay in the Old Testament, I guess in Arkansas, but it was not right you know, at, at that time. Just kidding for you Arkansas students that are here. And so, <laughs> should not have thrown that in. So I'm really not saying to all of you right now, this is the right way to, you know, to go through marriage, but that's certainly what's happening here is that Caleb's nephew is about to marry uh, Caleb's daughter of Oxa. Now, Oxa, for some reason, just her name does not make it sound like she was perhaps much to win, but the, it's not Oxa, O-X. It's oxa with an A-C-H, and really oxa in Hebrew, this is interesting, it means tiny, little, dainty, ankle bracelet. That's what oxa means. So she must have been a timid, quiet, shy, you know, all before she got married, you know, a woman, you know, she was, she was the, the, the gift, if you will, or the prize of, of Caleb being able to hand his, his daughter off. So who steps up to the plate but his nephew by the name of Othnile. Now what's the name of the city that Othnile goes and takes? It's Cariath Sefer. Cariath is the Hebrew word, of course, again, for city. Sefer is the Hebrew word for books. So this is the, the town where the library was, where all the Canaanites kept perhaps their genealogy, their, their records, their, their books on scroll. And so Othniel has already watched his uncle, Caleb, take out a Kiriath Arba, the four cities with the giants running the city. So now he says to him, Caleb says to Othniel, you go take this city. It must have been like maybe Alexandria, which had a library in it in northern Africa, or maybe in the town of, of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. There was the, the library of Celsus that was there in the city of Ephesus. In the same way, perhaps a Kiriath Sefer, again, was the library central of, of the day. So Caleb says, you have watched me go and kick the tail of the giants. You go beat the librarians, and I will give you, if you'll beat the librarians during that city, I will give you my daughter as, as, as the gift, if you will, as, as the bounty. And so we see in this, I've got two points for you here. Number one, Othniel saw the power of God in the life of Caleb. Young Othniel, his young nephew, was watching his uncle and said, I see a power of God in you and I want it. 
I saw how you trusted God for the things that seemed so impossible, and I want that. And I wrote down for you a great quote by Matthew Henry, who was a theologian who lived back in the 17th century. And here's what Matthew Henry says is happening right here. Caleb is doing what older men should do, and that is inspire the younger generation to serve God. As far as I can tell, Caleb was not complaining about the music of the young generation. He wasn't telling them to pull up their sagging tunics, you know, whatever. He was not upset about their lifestyle, about how they dressed, about their music. Instead, what he was saying is, I'm going to be an example to them. And old men should do that. We should be an example to the younger generation. If some of you don't feel very old in here, only one person in the room is the youngest. All of you have somebody you can be an example to. All of you have the next generation behind you that you can be an example to the power of God in your life. College students, there's a high school group and a middle school group at this church that would love to see the power of God in you. Middle school students, you watch our high school students, those who love God with all their heart. Middle school students, believe it or not, there's kindergartners and third graders and fifth graders who are watching your life. Meeting adults, there's newlyweds behind us. Newlyweds, there's college students behind you. Senior adults, You live your life in the power of God. And you, by your example, will be teaching us what it means to follow God with all of our hearts. And here it is, Judges 3.9. Fascinating, amazing. Look at this, Judges 3.9. So go over two pages to the right. I know I've said, and now we'll wrap up, but we really will wrap up now. Here we are, Judges 3.9. So Israel's in trouble again. But when they cried out to the Lord... God raised up for them a deliverer. <laughs> Who is it? Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The first judge in the book of Judges was Caleb. The second judge in the book of Judges is Othniel. Here's what I'll put in your notes. Caleb's faith so impacted Othniel that he too Led others with courage. Brothers and sisters, friends, church, you'll either be a conqueror in life or you'll be conquered by life. I encourage you to be with us this fall as we study the book of Judges together. Would you bow your head and bow your heart with me, please, as we pray? Father, thank you for the authority and the fascinating nature of your word. Father, I pray this morning that we have learned and that we have grown, that we have been transformed. God, thanks for setting before us a conqueror by the name of Caleb, who reminds all of us, God, that you'll accept and forgive anybody that comes to you, and that we should love you with all of our hearts, and we should not be overwhelmed by the things that seem impossible, because all things are possible with our God. Father, give us the spirit of being a conqueror. We understand it's not in our power, it's not in our flesh, it's not in our personality, it's not in our volition. But God, we're powerful when we are in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors through Christ, the one who loves us. So God, give us that spirit this year. Either we're going to be conquered by life or conquerors in life through the power of God. Father, I pray for all my younger brothers and sisters in here today, God, that they would look to the older generation and would see the power of God in us.
And Father, I pray for the generation above me, God, that I could look to them and see the power of God in them that would stir up courage in my life as I desire to stir up courage in the life of the generation that comes behind. Father, thanks for your presence here. So now we respond because your word has gone out. It's through Christ that we are conquerors. It's through Christ that we now respond to your word. And it's through Christ who is the ultimate conqueror that we pray together.